thank you for listening to the Sharon Church Podcast. If you'd like to know more about the church, please visit us at SharonChurch.com. Now we hope you learn from and enjoy today's message. Bibles. Let's turn to Ephesians chapter three. I'm, um, I'm a little worked up this morning. I'm sorry. I don't know why. I just there's something happening, and so I want. I just I just know that as we get into into study, it's going to be a little a little more than I thought it was. So just get there with us. Um, Ephesians chapter three is where we'll be this morning. We're continuing our, our series through the letter of, Eph- of of Ephesians to the church at Ephesus. We're going to be in chapter three. So at the end of chapter three, Paul finishes up kind of his doctrine and then verses, or chapters four, five, and six are all about application. How do we apply the things that we are learning? So you people who just can't wait for application, it's coming, but don't skip this. This is important. To know how to apply it, we gotta know what we're actually applying. So we're gonna finish that up. Chapter three today and next week and then we'll get into chapter four. Um, in November, uh, we'll begin our Christmas series that we call The Advent of Christ. We're gonna go through Advent together. Uh, be looking for that. Um, coming forward. So uh, there, there's a real enemy um, in the world. There's a real enemy in our churches. There's a real enemy in our lives and our marriages. And I think sometimes as Americans, we can think we've moved on past the supernatural. We can think that we've, we've moved beyond that. That's for third world countries. That's for, pe- that's for people who um, haven't Wikipedia'd enough yet to understand it. That's just for the fantastical. That's for those who have mental disorders. Uh, scripture is clear that there are realms in which we don't exactly know what's going on. There are realms in which uh, it's not physical, it is spiritual. So Paul, in this letter to the church at Ephesus, references the heavenly places. He references what's called the powers and principalities or the authorities and the powers. Uh, He references it three specific times. He alludes to it another couple times. This is real. So as we get into this study this morning, I want us to first understand this. There is an enemy who is trying to destroy the church of God, trying to destroy what God has set in motion. But the problem for us is that when, when we've been told that, we have sci-fi movies in our mind, we have horror movies in our mind, and we don't exactly understand the ways in which the enemy works. It's my belief that the enemy is at work in the churches in America differently than he is at work in churches in third world countries or even in communist countries. And I think there are uh, ways in which the enemy at the state of, our, of churches today in America feels like he's made some solid headway. And it's interesting because in America, we have freedom to gather. We have freedom to sing. We have Christian radio stations on the airwaves who play mediocre music for us to listen to. And there are ways for us, this is, this is what America is. But I think the enemy is content with where America is with the gospel right now. Because there are ways in which the enemy works that are just working here. But if you look at communist China, where they aren't allowed to meet Christians are being added to the church by the thousands daily. They're on actual mission to see the good word of God push back darkness in the world. And in America, we have grown content to align ourselves with a political party or to align ourselves with some kind of dogma or country or nationalism. And I think the enemy is fine with that. Even for the churches who are away from that and have moved more towards like a social justice bent, I think the enemy is fine with that. I think the enemy is fine with people being fed and racial uh, relations being reconciled as long as it doesn't come in the name of Jesus Christ. I think he's fine if we feed people. 
I think he's fine with Sarah McLaughlin singing in the arms of an angel. I think he's fine with all of that. And so we, as, as a church in America, have kind of settled and dropped our defenses. We've, we've stopped moving forward. And here's how the enemy always works. The enemy destroys by distorting, by distorting and distracting. It's how he's always worked since the beginning of time. The enemy cannot create. There is one creator, and that is God. But there is an enemy, the devil, Satan, who can take what God has created, and he can distort it to make it serve his purposes. Genesis chapter three, God gives the Garden of Eden to Adam and Eve, says there's this one tree you can't eat of. Just don't eat of it. Everything else you can have. I love you. All of this is for you. And all the enemy has to do is switch around a few words, and it makes Adam and Eve feel like God is not for them. He's holding out on them. And that's the beginning of every one of our sinful behaviors. It begins with that very thought. We'd rather be God than be with him. That's where it all begins. And the enemy just has to distort. And then he distracted Adam and Eve from the goodness of God and made them fixated on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's what he does. And for us, as, as the church in America, he has distorted, he has distorted the gospel, the good news, in ways that now have aligned themselves with nationalism, have aligned themselves with social justice, have aligned themselves with uh, different organizations as opposed to the one true king, Christ Jesus. And in that distortion, we've become distracted. And we are so distracted in October of 2020 that the most pressing thing we think about is an election. And if we look at the course of the Bible, it is God who decides who sits on seats, who sits on thrones, who sits in oval offices. It's God who decides. We've also grown in the South, particularly distracted by our moral code. We've become distracted in fighting against things as opposed to being known for what we are for. And so we align ourselves in ways that that becomes our identity. We have found, I have found my identity outside of the gospel and in some sort of cultural pride. Now, remember back to middle school or high school, those of you who are in high school, remember back because it only happens there. Adults don't do these kinds of things. It only happens to teenagers. Um, remember when you just, you wanted to be liked, you wanted to have friends, and so you changed the way you dressed or you changed the music you listened to. Uh, maybe you didn't change it totally, but you started to adapt a bit more, um, and you heard Hollister as soon as you walked into the mall, and so you walked and smelled your way there and got dressed or whatever. Or maybe it was the Jinkos for you and the, and the um, or hookah, whatever, puka, puka necklaces. I don't know what it was for you. Um, maybe it was you were the Ralph Lauren Polo kid. You were the preppy kids. And now preppy kids wear shorts shorter than I've ever seen uh, guys ever wear, but I guess that's cool, so you do you. Um, the Ralph Lauren Polo kids, or, or maybe you couldn't afford Ralph Lauren Polo, so you were the Knights of the Round Table kids, and you, it looked the same, but from a distance it looked the same, but you weren't really. And Remember back then, you align yourselves with people who think the same way you think, or you want to think like them because they get some kind of attention that other people don't get. So we begin to find our identity. It begins uh, with an arrogance that we want to be known, we are important, that turns to an insecurity when we realize we aren't as important as we think we are. And then we get in these groups to find that arrogance. Then that arrogance turns into hostility. And it's why, it's why the preppy kids were hostile uh, towards the goth kids 
because the preppy kids believed, hey, if we just had more preppy kids at our school, then it would be cleaner and we'd have nicer things and we'd, we'd have um, vegan lunches. And so that's, that's what we want. And then the goth kids were like, no, no, if we had more goth kids, then our arts program would be so much better and we need to have more of that. And so now, instead of just being different people who like different things, now we'd be, we've become hostile towards one another and there's a pride that has risen up. And we begin to realize, hey, this is how I know who I am by the people that I'm around. This is how I know that I am or who I am. And if I am this and they are not this, they must be my enemy and they must be taken out. We scapegoat we scapegoat people who aren't like us. But again, that was high school. Adults don't do that. That never happens on social media or on anywhere. Uh, right, so this, we don't outgrow it is what we do, is what happens. Paul is gonna speak to uh, the church here at Ephesus and this church is made up of Jewish believers, historical, cultural Jewish believers and Gentile believers. Gentile, think about the word Gentile meaning the nations. So anybody except for Israel and they've all come to know Jesus and he writes this letter to them. Uh, But the Jews in the Old Testament and into the New Testament as they began to follow Jesus, some of those Messianic Jews, they were still known, they took the law of God, they took the mission of God. And the mission was to show the world what God is like. They are God's representatives on the earth. A kingdom of priests, a royal priesthood. This is who they are chosen to be. They're supposed to declare to the world, God has created you and he is good and he is for you. But because that's too difficult, because sometimes it's just too difficult to be on the offensive, it's too difficult to push back darkness, they decided then to fall back and known, become known for things that they were against as opposed to what they were for. So Paul writes this letter to the church at Ephesus with these groups in it. Jews and Jewish Christians who love Jesus but also think you have to be Jewish to love Jesus, and then Gentiles who love Jesus and who will never become Jewish just to know Jesus. And Paul writes this letter to them. Let's look at verse one of chapter three, or I'm gonna run out of time. Ephesians three, verse one. For this reason, so Paul always, he's always building. It's not random thoughts, he's always building. For this reason, based on chapter two, and in which chapter two he said, God has opened the doors to faith, to salvation, from just being for the Jews to now being for the Gentiles, and God is building them together into a household, a dwelling place for the Spirit of God. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner. It's the first time Paul's telling us something, where he is. He's in prison. He is a prisoner. But then here's what's interesting, for Christ Jesus. Not a prisoner of Rome, not a prisoner because of the Jews, a prisoner for Christ Jesus. This is part of of his mission. On behalf of you, Gentiles, not because of you, but on behalf of you Gentiles. So let me just quickly put in context why he's saying this. Paul is in prison, and he's in prison in Rome. Um, Paul had been arrested, um, but he was arrested because Jewish people had manipulated the Roman government to arrest Paul. This should sound familiar to somebody else in which the Jewish people manipulated the Jewish government then to arrest Jesus. So the Jews have Paul arrested. Paul has come into Jerusalem. He has just finished over a decade of ministry in which he's seeing a number of Gentiles come to faith in Jesus. People who aren't Jewish come to believe in the one true God through the gospel of Jesus. And he tells the rulers of the the church in Jerusalem, James, Jesus' brother, being the pastor, of all the great things that have happened. This is amazing. Gentiles are coming to Jesus. Look at, on the screen will be Acts chapter 21, verse 20. You can write the notes down if you want to. 
When they heard it, when the leaders heard it, when the pastors heard it, they glorified God. When they heard Gentiles had come to faith, they glorified God. And they said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have also believed? And they are zealous for the law. So the Jews in Jerusalem like the fact that Gentiles are coming to faith, but they want to shift attention quickly to Paul. Hey, hey, listen, that's great. Gentiles are awesome. We, whatever, that's great. But here's the problem. You know, also, there were a bunch of Jews who came to Jesus too. Don't forget about them. And then the leaders tell us something distinguishing about the Jews at this time. Here's what they were known for. They were zealous for the law. They were passionate about the law. They, were, they had become legalistic. Again, they've been given the mission of God to show the world what God is like, to push back darkness in the world, and they had worked it all the way down to the law. This is what we're gonna be about. We're gonna be about the law. 640-something commandments are gonna be about them. But again, you can't be about 640-something commandments. You're gonna have to narrow that down a bit. So they brought it down to three different things they were about. They were about keeping the Sabbath day holy. One of the commandments, they're gonna keep the Sabbath day holy. So they were legalistic about it. Uh, there were laws put in place outside of scripture that uh, you could drag a chair, but you couldn't carry it. You could walk a certain amount of miles, but uh, not any more than that. Um, you could cook, cook certain types of food, but not other ones. You had to have slip-on sandals because you couldn't tie them. That would be work on the Sabbath. That's what they were known for. They kept the Sabbath holy, but it wasn't about worship. It was about their work. Uh, secondly, they were known for their strict dietary restrictions, uh, they were known for what they could and could not eat. They would not eat pork and they would not eat meat sacrificed to idols and they would not mix meat and milk, dairy and meat together. That was unclean and sinful. So they were known for keeping the Sabbath day holy and they were known for their dietary restrictions. And thirdly, uh, they were known for male circumcision. And in fact, this became the primary identity of the Jews. And I'd like to speak to whoever was doing the Jewish marketing at that time because it feels like there were other options to go with uh, than being known as the circumcisers. But if that's what they went with, you know, that's fine. Who am I? I don't know. But that's what they were known for. And here's why. Here's why they chose these three things because they can keep tabs on those three things. They can see what people do on the Sabbath. They can see the things they eat. And at some point, if they asked, they could see uh, outward circumcision. They could keep tabs on them. But they had whittled down the mission of God down to these three things and primarily then to male circumcision. So uh, we need to be careful as the church, as Christians, that we don't just talk about those ignorant Jews without first realizing that we are ignorant Christians as well. And we have to look at where maybe we have neglected the mission of God for something that we have whittled down into a few cultural markers as opposed to uh, the mission of God's goodness and plan for the world. So this is um, what they had been known for. Um, we're gonna skip the next uh, section there of Acts 21, but Paul um, is accused of taking an Ephesian man into the temple, past the wall of hostility, into the temple, and he's accused of that um, by Jewish people from Asia. Ephesus is in Asia, so they're Ephesian accusers, accusing him of taking an Ephesian Gentile man into the Jewish temple. So Paul writes this letter, again, it's a very personal thing for him. So when he says, I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, those aren't just words, he means it, he means it. We'll come back to that. Let's go back to Ephesians chapter three. Here's the context for us from Acts 21. 
This says, I'm a prisoner on behalf of you Gentiles. Verse two, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. I'm in prison on your behalf, and I'm assuming, though, that you've heard of a few things. Here's what I think you've heard of, Paul says. The stewardship of God's grace. Some of your translations uh, might say dispensation or manifestation of God's grace. So think about uh, if you had had $100 and you had three or four different people who had different needs they needed met or they wanted to meet needs, you would have to be a steward and dispense that money differently based on whatever that person wanted to accomplish. So uh, we've got three kids. Let's say uh, Meredith and I have $100 to our name which isn't far off, we've got $100, and we want to, um, our kids have three school projects they need, then we, we spend the amount of money they each need on that school project. Landry's might not be as much as Colton's is, it doesn't matter, they need to accomplish the project. So when he says, you've heard of the dispensation, the stewardship of God's grace given to me, what Paul is saying is, in God's riches of his grace, he has sectioned out a part of it for my mission, for me. You've heard that God has given me a particular dose of grace and it was given to me for you Gentiles. Not to spend on myself, but for you, the Gentiles. Now pay attention, one word's gonna come up a number of times here. Verse three, and how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. You can read about that earlier. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So Paul's speaking of the mystery of Christ and he says, this mystery was revealed to me but the prophets didn't even know about it. Uh, it wasn't revealed to anyone until me and this is not a prideful, this is a realistic statement. This has been made known to me, it wasn't in other, other um, generations. This is called progressive revelation. So if you care about this stuff, uh, in, in the Bible, God withholds certain pieces of him that he reveals over the course of time. Now we know that the Bible has given us everything we need for training in godliness and for right living and for knowing God. So we believe that revelation has all now come right here. It's in Genesis to Revelation is where we get all the revelation of God. Now God can still reveal himself to us outside of scripture, but it has to run itself through the filter of scripture now. But Paul is saying progressively there were things withheld withheld from the Jews that I now know about and I'm gonna tell you all about it. Uh, Then into verse six. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So this word mystery has come up a few times. It'll come up again. You hear mystery, I hear mystery, and we think Agatha Christie, um, or we think mystery movies. We think Sherlock Holmes. uh, We think the game Clue. This is what we think of when we think of mystery. This is uh, Murder on the Orient Express kind of stuff. Uh, mystery, biblically speaking, the word might be better for us would be the word secret. So it's not that it's mysterious, that it's kind of um, ethereal and unknown, but it's, it's something that has been hidden that has now been revealed. So Paul's saying, I was given a secret that not even the Old Testament leaders had. I, I have a secret that God has given me through his grace and it's for you. And this is the secret. The secret is that the Gentiles are now welcomed in. The nations are welcomed in as fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel. 
People hearing this letter to the church at Ephesus and surrounding churches would have been um, Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. Gentile Christians love this. Yeah, we're in. The door has been open and we get to come in. This is amazing news. The Jewish Christians have a bit of hesitancy because that's not fair. Um, we've given our lives to some of these things. We've given our lives to the law. We've given our lives to keeping the Sabbath day holy. We've given our lives to dietary restrictions. We haven't had bacon in 40 years. This is not fair that they get to just walk in. Um, and we've, we've been circumcised. We have, we have marks of it. And so the way around that, the way around their hostility was that then they would, they would say, okay, hey, hey, listen, Gentiles, great. Come be part of this. You just have to become Jewish first. Males just have to be circumcised. That's all, that's all. That's all we're asking. And you can't eat these types of meats and you have to do these things and can't do these things on the Sabbath. If you do that, then we're good. So that's who's hearing this letter. So when Paul says, no, 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 God opened it for everyone, there's some tension arising. And he says through the gospel. Now this word in the Greek is euangelion, which is good news. And we think of good news and we think, oh, our favorite team won or our least favorite team lost or um, a good report from the doctor. Those are all good news. But this word was used for um, when two countries would go to war, each country would have kind of a page or a recorder or a reporter. And as the battle was winding down, the reporter would run back from the winning army, from the winning nation, would come back to the town square, stand on the steps or on a box, and declare the good news that the battle, battle is over. Our country, our nation has won. <clears throat> Euangelion is the declaration to the kingdom, the people of the kingdom of God, that our king has won. He is victorious. That is the gospel. So when you hear the word gospel, I want you to hear, <clears throat> excuse me, I want you to hear somebody running back from the war, from the war in the heavenly places saying, hey, we've won, it is finished. We're all granted access to the king of kings. So Paul is saying, hey, the way that Gentiles and Jews now can come together is through the gospel, not through Jewish faith, not through circumcision, not through dietary restrictions, not through keeping the Sabbath day holy, simply through the gospel. Verse seven of this gospel, of this good news that Jesus has won the war. I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given me by the working of his power. We've all been given a mission. This was Paul's mission. God gave him the grace he needed, God's grace that he needs for the mission and he gave it to him through the working of his power. Just a quick side note. I don't know what your mission is in this world but I know you have one. And in the same way that God divided his grace, that all of it, and he took portions of his grace and gave it to Paul, he's given you portions of his grace too. If you are raising a, a handicapped child or a developmentally disabled child, God has given you grace for that and he's done it through his power. You aren't left without the ability to do it. If your marriage is struggling, if, if you are, are trying to restore something that has been broken, God's grace has been given, divided to you, and through his power, he is working with you. Be encouraged this morning, church. Whatever mission God has you on, he's given you what you need to accomplish that mission this morning. According to the working of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. Verse eight, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this is not false humility. This isn't virtue signaling. Paul means this. And here's why. Uh, because Paul was Jewish. Paul went by the name of Saul and, and he knew all about the dietary restrictions and keeping the Sabbath day holy and circumcision. He knew all of them and he did all of them and he did them better than everybody else ever did them. 
uh, of the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised on the eighth day, a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Jew of Jews, rising to power. And he made it his mission, not God's mission, but his mission uh, to destroy the church out of his Jewish dogma. Out of his belief that they were ruining the whole thing, he set on a mission to kill Christians. And so when Paul says, hey, God gave me the ministry of bringing Gentiles and Jews together, he's like, are you kidding me? There could have been anyone better than me because I was doing the opposite of this. I'm the least, but this was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable, the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery, of the secret, hidden for ages in God who created all things. So Paul understands personally, this is my mission, to bring this to light, that the dividing wall of hostility has been destroyed, the veil in the Holy of Holies has been torn from top to bottom, and we all have access to God. No matter your creed, color, ethnicity, um, political affiliation, we all have access to the same God. This was Paul's mission. And again, that's why Paul says in verse one, hey, listen, I'm in prison for this. Like, I, I'm standing on this truth. This isn't a trend. This isn't uh, something I read about. This isn't something that kind of got me all excited. I, I believe this to be true. And I was very much against this a few years ago, but I'm very much for this now. So much so that I'm willing to go to prison and die for this. Then verse 10, this is why, this is why God has opened the door for the Gentile. Verse 10, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known. So Paul says God has opened, has crushed the dividing wall of hostility. Gentiles and Jews can all come to know Jesus. They don't have to become Jewish first. They can just know Jesus. And here's why he did it. So that through the church, This word is ecclesia, the gathering of called out ones, those who would be sent into battle, those who would be given a mission, so that through the church, through the church, big C, all around the world church, manifested through the local church, through the church, the manifold. Uh, This is a Greek word transliterated from a Hebrew word that describes Joseph's technicolor dream coat in the Old Testament, coat of many colors, This wisdom of God is diverse. It is many colored. Think of a diamond and the the sides of it that radiate and reflect different types of light. This wisdom of God that through the church, this is the point of the Gentiles coming to faith with the Jews, making one new humanity, that the diverse, many colored wisdom of God might might now be made known, might now be revealed. God revealed it to Paul. Paul's gonna reveal it to the church that the church might reveal it to whom? Well, we're gonna learn at the end of verse 10, to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Again, we don't like to think this way because it makes us feel kind of weird, but there are realms in which activity is happening that you and I can't see. And I know that sounds way too crazy for us educated people. But Paul's gonna talk about uh, rulers and authorities, powers and principalities. He talks about them in chapter one, here in chapter three. Then he'll reference them very strongly in Ephesians chapter six, talking about spiritual warfare. He talks about heavenly places again, and we've seen this. There's three places for the Jew. There's the ground level place called the air, which is everything beneath the clouds. There's the cosmos or the, the galaxies. 
And then you've got the heavenly places. And the heavenly places is where uh, spiritual warfare happens. It's where <clears throat> spiritual powers and principalities, rulers and authorities live and do their work. It's where the angels and demons are. This is biblical. This isn't fantastical. This isn't um, sci-fi movie. This, this is real. And so God has opened the, the gates for the Gentiles and the Jews to come together for this reason, that we might declare to the demons in the darkness, to the demons in the heavenly places, to the, the devil himself, to Satan himself, the manifold wisdom of God. The church is a cosmic shout declaring that the ways of God are better than the ways of the world. So when you and I gather here today, there's something happening in heavenly places. There are angelic beings who needed this to be revealed to them who are rejoicing over what has happened. The manifold wisdom of God is coming to fruition. This is happening. God is working. And then you've got the demons and the enemies and you've got those manifestations not rejoicing but cowering in fear and retreating because the manifold wisdom of God, his plan is working and they are on their final breath. It's bigger than you thought it was. I don't think you came to church this morning thinking about the heavenly places and what the demons are gonna think about you being here today. But we declare to the cosmos, we declare to the galaxies a cosmic shout that the ways of God are better than whatever the world has to offer. But the wisdom of a plan is only seen by the fact that it works. If somebody came to you and said, hey, hey, I have a plan for you to become a millionaire, and you say, oh, have you done this before? I say, no, 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 I've never done it. I mean, I've tried it, but now I'm in debt. But I think it would work for you. That's not the wisdom of that. You're not gonna trust the wisdom of that plan. It's like, uh, I'm gonna go a different direction. The wisdom of a plan is only seen by the fact that it works. So we show the wisdom of God. Here's how we declare it. We show it in the church when we declare that the death of Jesus Christ was not in vain. We all do have access to him. He's reconciled us to God. He's reconciled us to each other. He's broken down the dividing wall of hostility. This is how we declare that it works. Jews and Gentiles, other races, ethnicities, we can all gather together. We are one new body, one new humanity. We have the fruit of the Spirit. We have the hope of his immeasurable kindness forever. We show the wisdom of God to the cosmic powers by being the church that Christ died to create. Anything less than that gives the demons, gives the powers and authorities. When we fail to live in that hope and maintain that gospel, the demons then get this signal from us. Oh, it's not working. God's not wise. In fact, he's foolish. We knew that was a stupid idea. We knew it would never work. Looks like we were right. Looks like we were right. When we gather together as the church, when we live as the church, as the called out ones, as ones sent on mission, we declare to the demons that they have no business here. They'll never win this fight. But as we begin to fall, fall back into the ways of the world and there is animosity and hostility among us, then we are signaling to them they're actually winning. We're declaring something to them. 
The problem for us is this. You cannot use the world's means to get to God's ends. You can't use the world's means to get to God's ends. What's happened is that for us as the church, Big C Church, we have adopted worldly principles and we have allowed them to infiltrate the church. And we're all trying to get to God's ends. We're trying to get to what he has called the church to be. But we're using distortion. We're using distraction. We're using the world's means to try to get to God's ends. And we can't. And the enemy is content because he has so distorted the purpose of the church and distracted the church from the mission of God that he is, in fact, believing that he is winning the day. James uh, says it this way in James chapter four. He said, what causes quarrels and causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, and so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask, but you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Verse four, you adulterous people, speaking to the church at Jerusalem, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity or hostility against God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. We cannot have the ends of God with the means of the world. We cannot, Jesus would say, serve two masters. You will love the one and hate the other. We have to leave and cleave, leave the world and cleave to the marriage to the lamb. But we're trying to do both. As Christians, we want what God has for us, but we wanna get there through what the world has for us. So I want to be generous, but I want to make my money the way the world makes money. And so I'm gonna work as hard as I can and I'm gonna forsake my family and forsake my faith because my mission, my hope is to give more to God. But in the process of trying to give more to God, I've lost most of myself that I was supposed to be giving to God or my family to begin with. We can't have both. We can't pursue the goodness of God and push back darkness in the world using hostility and using vehement discourse and using um, argumentative behavior and passive aggressive comments and statements. We only push back darkness with light. And the filter of the gospel is meant to keep the ways of the world out of the church. This is why Paul says it's through the gospel through the good news, through the proclamation that it is finished. So I wanna quickly give us three ways in which this makes, plays itself out. Through the filter of the gospel, comparison gives way to celebration in the church. The church should never be a place of comparison because comparison is all about pride. When we filter through the gospel, comparison and what gets shaken out of comparison is celebration. Uh, if you have kids and you've taught them how to walk or they've learned how to walk and uh, that first time they take steps, we celebrate as parents. We lose our minds about children walking. Like we, we go crazy when they start walking. And I've never, ever, heard this day, to this day, heard of, seen in person, a parent tell their one-year-old who just started walking, what took you so long? 
I've been walking for 25 years. You've seen me walk every day of your life. How did this take you this long to learn how to walk? Or when that child falls after kind of trying to walk and being celebrated, a parent who didn't say, you idiot, I thought you could walk. You told me you could walk. You looked like you could walk and now you've fallen. We don't do that. We pick that child up and we have them walk again. But in comparison, we compare ourselves to the person just learning how to walk and we either grow prideful in the fact that we've been walking for 25 years, what's your deal? Or the person who falls, we keep them there because it's their fault. They should have learned. They've watched me walk. If you um, remember back uh, to a Pittsburgh Steeler linebacker, Ryan Shazier, who got paralyzed. He's paralyzed playing football and um, begins to take steps. The, the sports world went crazy that Ryan Shazier was taking assisted steps and that he walked across the stage at the ESPY Awards. And rightfully so. But in the church, you know what we would have done? Well, how'd you get hurt in the first place? I don't care that you're walking. I've been walking for 25 years and I've never had assistance. See, in the church, comparison gives way to celebration and we celebrate the goodness of God and the growth of people, whether they are first starting out to walk or they've been so beaten down by sin they're having to learn how to walk again. We're gonna celebrate as the church. Yeah, through the filter of the gospel, comparison gives way to celebration. Secondly, through the filter of the gospel, uniformity gives way to unity. The world um, wants uniformity. Now, they're not saying that, but it's what the world wants. Look like me, vote like me, sing like me, um, dance, don't dance like me. This, this is what the world is saying. No, we want diversity. We just want us all to be diverse in the same way. That's what we want. Well, in the church is the only place on the face of the earth where true diversity can happen. This is the only place because there's only one thing, there's one thing we're gonna, we're gonna align ourselves in. It's the gospel, the finished work of Jesus. And you can be black, white, Hispanic. You can be alien. I don't care. If you believe in Jesus Christ, we're gonna be fine here. I don't care which, where you vote. I don't care what you wear. I don't care what color your hair is or if it's not. If you don't have any. Do you like hymns? Do you like more progressive music? It doesn't matter. At the end of the day, the church is the one place where we can fight for unity. We don't need uniformity. We have all we need in the finished work of Jesus. Thirdly, through the filter of the gospel, hostility gives way to humility. Hostility only manifests itself where humility is lacking. We become hostile towards one another because we refuse to admit that we have reasons for people to be hostile against us as well. The very things that drive you crazy about someone are the same things that drive someone crazy about you. And in the church, we must have the humility to say, oh, me too, me too. And I don't like what that guy is wearing, but I'm sure there are people who don't like what I'm wearing also. I really, I really don't like that song we're singing, but there are probably other people who don't like the songs that I like. Humility pushes us back to the cross of Jesus Christ and the cross, Jesus died, uh, not for the people that you are hostile towards, but for you too. It gives way to humility. So the demons shudder, the demons run in fear when the church is known for the gospel. Paul continues in verse 11, this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. This was the plan from the beginning of time. 
in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So we have access to Jesus. So I ask you, Paul says, to not lose heart over what I am suffering for you. It's for your glory. What Paul is saying is, hey, me being in prison actually gives credence to what I'm saying, Gentiles. Me going to prison for this, willing to die for this, means that it must actually matter. And then verse 14, we'll do more of this next week. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. Here's what Paul knows. Uh, the church is made of humans. And where humans are, sin follows. We cannot build a church that pushes, pushes back darkness using human hands. We have to rely on the power of God. So for this reason, Paul says, I bow my knees before the Father. I know what's at stake. I know what's happening in Ephesus. There's gonna be division. Hostility will arise. Anger's gonna happen. You're gonna get frustrated and annoyed by somebody. It's going to happen. If it hasn't happened yet already this morning, it will happen later. And Paul says, so for this reason, I bow on my knees before the Father. So let's go to the Father this morning. We wanna be a church that shouts the goodness of the gospel of Jesus in a way that cosmic forces retreat. And we can't do it just by trying harder. Let's bow our heads close our eyes. For some of us this morning, what you need to hear first and foremost uh, is that the only way in to God's presence is through the finished work of Jesus, through the euangelion, through the, the good news of the gospel. And you might have been trying different ways. You've been trying to work harder and do better and stop doing that and do more of this. Maybe you've given up on that and now your identity is just, you're, you're the pothead, you're the addict. You're the adulterer, you are the murderer. You're the hothead who can't control his temper. Um, you too who are far off can be brought near this morning. And that thing you're longing for, the thing that can never get satisfied is the presence of God in your life. And all it takes is the humility of, of confessing that you're a sinner who needs to be saved by grace. I've, I've screwed this whole thing up. I can't seem to make it work. God, would you step in? And believing that he is who he says he is, that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. He did die on the cross and raised from the dead. And you confess that, then you can find yourself at the foot of a compassionate God cheering your baby steps forward. And we wanna be in church doing that as well. So if that's you this morning, um, Maybe if you could just raise your hand and let us know so we can cheer on a baby step for you. You're, you're moving forward. You've given your life to Jesus this morning. We wanna celebrate that with you. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Yes and amen, church. Afterwards, we'll be over here in the gathering place. Love to talk with you, talk with you more about it. We wanna continue to walk these steps with you. I think for the majority of us this morning, the issue for us, though, is um, we have tried to use the ways of the world to accomplish the, mean, the ends of God. And maybe for you, you're gonna need to take some time, like me this morning, and, and just repent for the ways that you have, um, you've, you've run after comparison, you've run after uniformity, and you've run for hostility. And the gospel has to filter those things out. And maybe divisions are happening because of what you've been running after. Well, God's gonna give you the grace you need for the mission of reconciliation. And maybe it's someone in the room this morning that you need to approach and say, I'm sorry, I confess this and I repent. Would you forgive me? And when that happens, demons run. 
God, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for the gospel. I thank you for the good news that it is finished and you have won the war. And for those of us this morning who have a hard time believing it because we're in the midst of it, it doesn't feel like you've won. I still can't defeat this sin. I still can't overcome this. I still can't fight my pride. I, I still have things I need to confess. I don't want to. God, help us to rest in it today. For those of us this morning who have given our lives to Jesus for the first time, who have said, yes, I wanna be a part of that. I wanna trust in, in that plan for my life. We praise you, God. As a church, we praise you and we wanna walk with these people. For those of us this morning, give us the courage to repent of the ways that we have let the ways of the world infiltrate the church in our hearts. God, we wanna be a church that shouts to the cosmic powers that you're better and you are winning and they should pack their backs. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. 